Well, good morning again. We'll take a look this morning at uh, the fourth uh, lady listed in the uh, genealogy of Jesus, um, who interestingly in that genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 goes unnamed. But there is historical context, and so I'm going to ask you, first of all, to turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll find it in your pew Bibles, it'll also be on the screen. And then we'll jump to a few other places uh, as well, so that uh, we can follow along. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 11 stands in context. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, David has sent emissaries to the Ammonites because the king of the Ammonites has died And so he sends a delegation, and the new king is not receptive to that delegation and mocks them by cutting off half their beard and removing their robes halfway their buttocks. And then he says to his emissaries, well, stay where you are in Jericho until your beard grows because it's a shame for you to come home. And then war breaks out against the Ammonites, but it's not finished. That's the context of chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. 
But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Job sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Didn't the woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told everything David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And then reading from the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminabab, Aminabab, the father of Hashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And I'm going to invite you to uh, skip back to a, another listing uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And we're going to begin at verse 24, skip a bunch of verses, and then get down to verse 34 until the end of the chapter. There are a whole bunch of names here. They're not exactly familiar. So if I butcher a few, you'll survive. Among the 30 were Ashahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem, Shammah, the Herodite, and Elikiah, the Herodite. And then skipping down to verse 
34. Elophilite, the son of Abisha, the, the Maccachite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, Hezra, the Carmelite, Parai, the Arbite, Igal, son of Nathan from Zobah, the son of Hagri, Zillak, the Ammonite, Nahariah, the Barothite, the armor-bearer of Job, the son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerub, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite. There were 37 in all. And then going, um, what, what, which one are we at now? Uh, okay, the, this is the, um, uh, a short reference to um, Ahithophel, and I'll explain that in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23. Now in those days, the advice of Ahith- that Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded Ahithophel's advice. And then one more reading from uh, 1 Kings 15, verse 5. 1 Kings 15, verse 5. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. This is the word of the Lord. I want to ask you a question, and that is, have you ever felt absolutely powerless? Without any capacity to make the difference that has to be made. I'll illustrate with a personal story. I was about 12 years old, as I recall, We had 27 milking cows on the farm where I grew up. And one of the fields had corn, and the cows had broken into the corn. And when I went to get the cows for milking that evening, I could not drive them out of the corn. Could understand, it's delicious. But I was really concerned for them because they were eating the suppers that they were supposed to have in December and January, February, March. They were eating down their own future. And I could drive out three to five of them at a time, but when I went to get the other 20 or so, the three to five went back into the cornfield. And I stood and cried because I felt so incapable. I had no capacity to rescue them from their own destruction, and I could sense that my own family's security was at risk. I finally had to run home as fast as I could, and was about a kilometer away, and get help from my brothers who came, and collectively we could drive them out. But to this day, when I think about that event in my life, a chill still goes down my back, I feel it right now, because of that sense of absolute powerlessness. I had no capacity to rescue. We read this morning the story of another woman in a line of Jesus 
And it's interesting that she goes unnamed. Consider that for a moment. Consider the power of a name. Police will come and knock on someone's door. Open in the name of the law. Or in the olden days, it was open in the name of the queen or of the king. But there's power in a name. There's authority in a name. But Bathsheba, one, is not named. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Ponder that for a moment. And ponder why Matthew includes the name of four women, only one of whom, Ruth, who we looked at last week, has a sense of moral integrity. Rahab, a prostitute. Tamar, who played the role of a prostitute so she could be impregnated by her own father-in-law. And now Bathsheba, who is an adulteress. Why does Matthew include these women? Is he trying to send a message about the function and the role of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us? That Jesus wants to break down barriers. That Jesus wants to say to women who in the day of this writing from Matthew were marginalized and who had no role, had no authority, couldn't own property. He wants to say to women in Christ, there's now equality. In Christ there is now the breakdown of gender division. In Christ there is now power. And does he want to say, by the inclusion, the fact that at least half of these women, uh, perhaps all three of them, we don't know about the background of Bathsheba so much, but likely an Israelite, likely a Jew, that the barrier also between Jew and Gentile, between Greek and Jew, is broken down because Jesus lives out the instruction of the promise given to Abraham many, many years earlier. In you and in your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Paul will write, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but all are one. So Matthew is writing and saying that there is a cultural shift happening. Because Jesus has come and his kingdom is coming to expression. And that kingdom comes to expression as we understand the context of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Because while she is nameless in the listing of Matthew chapter 1, She is not without connection. She is known by her affiliation. And her affiliation is through three people. Eliam, her father. Ahithophel, the father of Eliam, that makes Ahithophel Bathsheba's grandfather. And Uriah the Hittite, who while he is a Hittite, has a Hebrew name. There is affiliation 
and that affiliation has to be unpacked. I read from this whole list of names. It, was, it began by saying among the 30 there were, and then it says there were 37 in all, but among the 30 there were Eliam, who in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is listed as the father of Bathsheba. And as you read from the NIV, it says, she is the wife of, uh, the daughter of Eliam, I am the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But in the Hebrew, it's actually put in the interrogative. Isn't she? Isn't she the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, David, you sent me to inquire as to this woman, but you know well who she is. She is a daughter of one of your personal bodyguards. She is the wife of one of your personal bodyguards. She, David, has to be respected for her affiliation. But David is not without power. He is the king. His emissaries to Ammon have been insulted. He protects their reputations. He tells, just stay at Jericho until your beards grow back and then you can come home. But in the meantime, he sends Joab to fight against the Ammonites. And now it is the spring of the year, the time when kings go off to war. And David breaks the norm. He is the king, but he stays home. Why? Because he can. Because he has the power. He has the capacity. And he sends Joab. Perhaps sometime this week you want to remind yourself of this uh, story. My father at the dinner table on Sunday afternoons always read the passage we had heard the sermon out on in the morning. And in the evening he would hear, read the passage that, that we heard the sermon on in the afternoon. He, he believed in this whole idea of reputation. And I think it's probably a good, pretty good thing. But take a pencil sometime and just look in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and circle every time you come to the word sent or send. Because those are words of authority. He sends to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. He sends Uriah the Hittite home with a present. He sends Uriah the Hittite back to Joab with a letter. In the letter it says, arrange for his death. He has power. He stays home. He sends Joab off. You get this idea though, he's a bit restless. So he's in bed, doesn't sleep, gets up, looks over the wall. Now there's the beauty. And he sends. Find out who she is. Isn't she the daughter of Eliam? Isn't she the wife of the Uriah the Hittite? He sends for her anyway. 
and he takes her to bed. Why doesn't she know? say no? We're not told. But the underlying sense is she doesn't have the power. She doesn't have the capacity. She doesn't have the authority to say no to the king. The only words Bathsheba says in this whole story at this point are three, and if you want to contract the I am into I'm, it's two. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. Notice the reference. She's just had her menstrual cycle. Uriah can't possibly be the dad. Uriah the Hittite, the wife of Bathsheba, the friend of Eliam, the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And who is Ahithophel? Well, Ahithophel is David's primary consultant, his closest advisor. In the reference we read a little later, a little later it says the words of Ahithophel to both David and Absalom were like the words of God. They were that highly regarded and that highly considered. Because Ahithophel was a man of wisdom. Later on, and we'll get to the background of that in a moment, but later on, when Absalom, David's son, rebels against David, Ahithophel switches sides. He leaves David and he joins with Absalom and he gives Absalom's advice as to how to best defeat his father and take the throne. And when Absalom refuses to take Ahithophel's advice, Ahithophel, it says in Scripture, went home, put his house in order, and took his own life. He went home, put his house in order, took his own life. Because he knew that when David was back on the throne, his own life would be forfeit because he had betrayed his king who had the power to take his life. But no doubt, Ahithophel felt that Bathsheba, his granddaughter, had been poorly done by, by the man who had power and could do it the way he wanted. But then those two words, I'm pregnant, what does it lead to? It leads to an abuse of power. David sends a message to Job, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Uriah the Hittite comes and gives a report. Tell me how Job's doing, tell me how the war is going, tell me how the army is doing. Whereas David should have been with his army, he should have been leading the war. Now he gets a report. And then he says, very interestingly, he says to Uriah, go home and wash your feet. Why would you do that? Why would you go home and wash your feet? Well, you don't go into the house with dirty feet. You're welcomed home with clean feet. And then the idea was, well, then while you're home, you'll have supper, and you'll be intimate with your wife, who you haven't seen for who knows 
How long? And then, well, when she's pregnant, everybody will assume, well, you were home. The deed's done. It's all good. And, and yes, if it's child's born at eh, seven and a half months, who's going to count too much? Obviously, this is the son or the daughter of Uriah. But Eliam, Bathsheba's father, has chosen Uriah to be the husband of his daughter because he knew that Uriah was a man of integrity. And so while David sends Uriah home, accompanied by a present, no doubt for the two of them to share, he and Bathsheba, Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah sleeps with the servants at the entrance to the palace because he identifies with his troops. Just because he has been sent to the palace doesn't mean that he shouldn't keep integrity with his troops. And that is reported to David, who says, uh, uh, Uriah, come here. It's the exercise of power. Why didn't you go home? Why, well, says, the ark, the symbol of the presence of God, and Judah and Israel are out in the field. They're fighting a war. I wouldn't imagine to sleep in my home, to have supper with my wife, and to be intimate with her. No. I'm going to be loyal to my troops. Don't think that I would do such a thing. Now that too is power. But it's power under control. Well, David's not done. He says, fine, stay here. Stay another night. And then go back tomorrow. But then he invites him for supper. And he says, what would you like to drink? Oh, rusty nail. There you go. Have one. No, have two. Have three. Have four. There are no ride programs in Jerusalem. Have five. And he gets Uriah drunk. Now Uriah is supposed to have less self-control. But there's something deep within the man's character. And he still refuses to go home. But remember, David has power. So he writes a letter. He gives it to Uriah. Give this to Joab when you get back. And in the letter, instructions to Joab, put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest. Now Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was a very skilled warrior. But it doesn't matter how skilled you are, you can still be overwhelmed and you can still deal, have to deal with arrows shot from a distance. You might not even be able to look your killer in the eye. And Uriah dies. And David's problem seems to be over. Although Joab's a bit sarcastic about it all. And says, uh, well, when you say, give the report to the king about how the battle is going... Uh, just put in this little qualifier. And Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
And David says, yeah, don't worry about it. The sword devours the one as well as another. Callous or what? You know, there's this old statement, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And then the closing line. What David had done displeased the Lord. Oops. Don't have absolute power after all, David. You are accountable. And then the famous story that I'm sure is told every Sunday in every Sunday school and probably used in many vacation Bible schools, the famous story about Nathan the prophet being sent to David and he tells him a little parable about a rich man who had many sheep and about a poor man who had one and how the rich man had guests over for dinner and decided that he couldn't sacrifice one of his many sheep, so he took the sheep of the poor man and he served it for dinner, and David was outraged. David was outraged. And then Nathan's famous line, but you, you are the man. And then the consequence of abuse of power, the consequence of losing, Self-control, the consequence of not knowing the limitations under which you work, come all home to bear. Nathan says to David, the sword will not depart from your house. The sword will not depart from your house. Now, can you imagine this? I mean, David, this man after God's own heart. David, this, this man who stands in the genealogy of Jesus. This David, who, who is so highly regarded and so highly respected. But remember that while he kept all the laws and the commands of God almost flawlessly, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. David now has to bear the consequences of what's going to happen. And three things stand out in the next chapters. Number one, David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and then hates her, despises her. Tamar is the sister of Absalom. And Absalom avenges his sister honor by taking his brother Amnon's life. Absalom has to leave for a while, comes back, becomes very popular, leads a rebellion against David, causes David to have to flee Jerusalem. A big battle is fought. Absalom's hair gets caught up in a tree. He dies. And David stands at the city gates and mourns, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. If only his heartbreak for his family. But the root of the heartbreak was in his lust. Consequences are grim. Because he has used power and abused power he has not kept himself in check and humbled himself before the Lord. But notice in Matthew's genealogy, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who we know to be Bathsheba, 
gives birth to a second son. The first son that she and David have conceived have died. There's a whole interesting unfolding of story there, but I'm limited in time, so I can't go there this morning, but you can read about that yourself. Just look at this line particularly where David's son dies, and then David says, he will not return to me, but I will go to him. The whole reality of hope and life after death, he will not return to me, but I will go to him. Bathsheba gives birth to Solomon. And David, again, you have to read the history if you're not aware of it. David makes a promise to Bathsheba. Solomon will be king in my stead. But at the end of David's life, there's all sorts of palace intrigue and others are vying for the throne. And one has claimed the throne already for his own. And then, with Nathan, the prophet, who said to David, you are the man. With Nathan, Bathsheba goes and she finds her voice. She finds her voice and she says, you promised Solomon would be king after you. And David said, yeah. And he becomes king. And out of the the line of Solomon will come Jesus. And Jesus will come and dwell amongst us full of power. Just read sometime the Gospels and all the exercise power. He turns water into wine. Good wine, apparently. He calms the storm. Peace be still. He multiplies fish and bread to feed 5,000 and more. He preaches and speaks with authority. He forgives sin. He heals the leper. He raises the dead. And then he gets arrested. He gets arrested. You read about it later in the Gospel of Matthew. And when he gets arrested, what happens? Peter pulls out his sword. He's going to exercise power. And he flicks out the blade, and Malchus's ear falls off. And Jesus says, put away the sword. Do you not know that I could ask my father for 12 legions of angels, and he would send them to me? Put away your sword. And he picks up Malchus's ear. No crazy glue, but... All done. And then he gets crucified. He could have called 12 legions of angels. But Hebrews, the book of Hebrews sums it up in these words, but I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus had the power to stop it, but he does not because he wants us To have the power of knowing that my sin and your sin is forgiven if we are washed in the blood of he who is Emmanuel, God, with us. And we are empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit to go out into this world and to speak truth to power. 
We speak truth to power. We say to those who believe they have limitless power, no, no you don't. You have power to be a servant, but you have to be accountable. You do not want to hear from the Lord that he is displeased with you. For then there are consequences. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' divinity is revealed through Moses and Elijah and to some of his disciples. And a voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so on this day, know that Jesus is the full expression of love. And we are called to listen to him. And as we listen, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow him and to go to those who have need and to help them. To go to those who do not know Jesus and explain to them who Jesus is and why he came. We have received power, capacity to make a difference in this world because Jesus came. And he came through a powerless person like Bathsheba who found her voice. And now the question is, will we find ours? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, the expression of your presence in our lives in the person of Jesus. And through the indwelling person of your Holy Spirit, who empowers us not only to know Jesus, but to also believe in him, and to be surrendered to him, to be used by his power to make a difference in this world. In this Advent season, Lord, as we celebrate your first coming, help us to prepare for your second coming. And we pray that you will find us faithful, exercising the power that you have given us through the gifts we have received to make a difference in your kingdom, to promote your honor and praise and your glory. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.